0: Good morning. Thank you for joining us here. Uh, My name is Norbert Michel. I'm Vice President and Director for Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Uh, Today, I'll be moderating a brief discussion with Jeb Hensarling and Yelena McWilliams, uh, mostly focused on the recent bank failures of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and Signature. Um, and the federal response. Was it good? Was it bad? Ugly? Uh, what could we do differently? That sort of thing. Yelena, of course, is former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC. And Jeb, of course, is former House Financial Services chair. Uh, before we get started, I would just, as a reminder, ask everyone in the audience to please ensure that your cell phone is either off or on silent. And the audience, Always online and here, actually, you could follow us uh, we, on, on either Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook using the hashtag CatoEcon. Um, so welcome, everyone. Thank you both for joining us. Um, here's the plan. I'm going to start off with a really high-level recap of the bank failures, just kind of what happened. Um, not a lot of detail. Uh, say something about the relevance of my book, my shadow banking book, uh, how it matters to these events and the parallels that I see there. Um, And then I'll get our discussion started and then we will have a brief Q&A. So what happened? Well, that's kind of the easy part. Uh, In March, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and Signature, late March, uh, both failed. Um, According to independent analysis, and the Fed and the FDIC, these banks were relatively unique uh, for different reasons. Signature was heavily involved in the digital asset market. After the FTX exchange failed and given the regulators' stance toward digital assets, a lot of depositors were nervous. That's the story we get. Um, And uh, separately, SVB was very heavily dependent on the venture capital market. And the thing that they had in common was that they both had very large uninsured deposits compared to the typical bank. SVB also had a very large unhedged exposure to Fannie and Freddie mortgage-backed securities, so they had a lot of interest rate risk as rates started going up, and that, that was sort of really, I think, their downfall. Um, so when they failed, the, the unique-ish thing from the federal standpoint, really, was that the regulators invoked what's called the systemic risk exception and they covered uninsured deposits. Um, That was kind of the controversy there. Uh, So that was the FDIC went ahead and protected even deposits that were uninsured. Um, Now, my book mainly deals with the 2008 crisis, uh, but there are some parallels there. One of the myths that it Uh, the book uh, addresses is that deregulated financial firms caused the 2008 crisis. And there's a parallel there because as soon as these banks failed, we started hearing that the rollback of Dodd-Frank in fact led to these bank failures. Um, So that's the first parallel. And we want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Second myth is that I deal with in the book. I research uh, the financial contagion aspect. The systemic risk exception was invoked in part because of the fear of contagion, which is sheer panic, as opposed to discriminate run against assets that have lost their value and insolvent institutions. Uh, and what I document in the book is that almost all the evidence really doesn't support contagion. It supports those discriminate runs. It, dis- it, it supports runs on insolvent institutions for specific asset failures, uh, not contagion. And government backing alone did not uh, stop that sort of discriminant behavior. So that's the other parallel. Um, The systemic risk exception was invoked to stop contagion. And right away, we started hearing in Congress that we need to have even more federal backing. Uh, So those are the parallels in my book. These are the same sort of stories uh, over and over again. And um, we're going to get to a little bit of all of that. And I kind of sort of had um, a plan, so to speak, um, on how I was going to have a jumping off point. But I got a monkey wrench, uh, particularly today. So I'm going to change gears a little bit for my own plan. You don't have to worry about it. I can still do this. Um, Over the last week, we've had multiple bills come out of the Senate and... Uh, one of those is co-sponsored by Senators Scott and Senators Brown on the Senate Banking Committee. Another is Senator Warren and uh, J.D. Vance. That one made news yesterday. And then today, um, Maxine Waters, House Financial Services Ranking Member, who Jeb is familiar with and, and is a yelling, uh introduced not one but 12 bills. And at least three of those also deal on the House side, deal with executive compensation clawbacks in some way. Um, And that's what all of the Senate bills deal with, executive compensation. Um, So yesterday's was billed as a new compromise bill, but Warren already had a bipartisan bill with Hawley. And it's not much different. It went from a five-year clawback to a three-year clawback um, it very It defines compensation very broadly. it allows pretty much any compensation to be clawed back from a bank executive of a failed bank and um, it 's kind of broad on on what to do on on how to do go about doing that on what would trigger the clawback. Um, i can 't help but read that and think, well, Wait a minute, how is it that we need to hold these guys accountable for some kind of taxpayer bailout or taxpayer coverage of deposit insurance, which is what I think made everybody so angry. Um, didn't Congress write that law? I mean, shouldn't, isn't that a, a is, is, this, is this what we should be doing? Should we be going after the bank executives for five years of all their compensation on top of the failure? Um, nobody had to cover the uninsured deposits. Congress allowed that to happen. I'll I'll throw it to
1: either. You go first, Jen. You go first.
2: (laughs) Well, Norbert, one thanks for having me here. And Yellen, it's so great to get back together with you yet again, one of the um, stellar financial regulators back in the, the day. So, Norbert, you gave me so much to unpack there. Uh, So, uh, out of fairness, um, I haven't actually read the legislation. And believe it or not, when I was in Congress, I actually did read legislation. I think I have maybe been one of the few members of Congress who did. But conceptually, again, the idea that when you also have failures of public policy, you have failures of prudential regulation, and yet no one is held accountable for those failures, and yet we see somehow some supposed new level of accountability being placed upon bank execs. Now, conceptually, the idea that everyone should have skin in the game if there is some type of federal backstop, and as you well put it, maybe it's time to kind of reexamine some of these federal backstops. But the concept that those, to some extent, who are responding to government uh, incentives, be it the risk weighting of sovereign debt, be it um, casualties, if you will, of unprecedented monetary policy experimentation, they pay a price that those who were responsible for the underlying policies in the first place Don't pay. There's just something that is somewhat amiss, and then you hit a very good point as well. And maybe it's a different forum, best left for a different day. But the sheer volume and I I guess the 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 quality of discretionary power that has now been outsourced from Article One of the Constitution to Article Two is absolutely frightening. And so Congress, frankly, for decades, have had this habit of writing these kind of broadly descriptive statutes and then leaving the real legislative powers to those who are unaccountable and unelected. And I can tell you from personal experience, Congress can exceed an unintended consequences. So number one, it begs the question, the relative accountability versus unaccountability the amount of, of, of congress perhaps even an unconstitutional delegation of their authority and then how would this be how would this discretion be exercised by those who would enjoy it And would they use this discretion ostensibly for the purpose of which it was designed or will it be used to further politicize financial regulation, which we are seeing from the FDIC to the OCC to the Fed? So, again, there's a lot of issues here, but I think... You know, although appealing on the surface, and particularly Congress wanting to react to something that is topical and something that may appear to be populist, which is gaining popularity in both predominant political parties, is really, in some respects, treating a symptom and not the underlying cause. And we really ought to be examining the underlying cause, which we're not.
1: Um, And I'll say, uh, as somebody who spent... uh, a little bit of time at the Federal Reserve uh, during the financial, great financial crisis. Those were good years, um, and, and then went to the Senate, and then uh, I was a general counsel regulated the regulated entity at the bank before I became the chairman, I will say that I'm always um, surprised, uh, and I shouldn't be because it's like a pattern. Every time we have a crisis in our hands, the regulatory agencies come out and say, oh, we need additional powers. And when you ask them, well, what, what is it in your arsenal of powers that you don't have, that you couldn't use? You know, I, looked, I, I briefly looked at those bills. As, as, as uh, Chairman Henslering knows, uh, bills move. Uh, they get introduced. They change quite a bit. And I, I like to look at the next to final version Uh, as they reach their compromises. But but the truth of the matter is that the the regulatory bodies, the Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC, have the powers to claw back compensation. They have done that in, in past cases. You know, there are some consent orders that you can read publicly where... You know, large bank executives had to forfeit profits and and give back. There is a, there is a so-called golden parachute stock that is uh, vesting, but the bank may be in trouble, and the regulators don't want to approve those golden parachutes, even though that was compensation given to the executives over the years. What I think is really interesting about the, the bills it's it's uh, it's a reaction from Congress uh, that you know oh, we got to do something, and uh, and then you look at you know. I think first and you mentioned this, people said it's the, oh, it's the, it was the rollback of S2155 that caused this. And then when you couldn't find real nexus to point out to the provisions that were quote-unquote rolled back to, to what happened in Silicon Valley Bank, then they said, okay, it's the executive's comp. It's this and that. The truth of the matter is none of that would have prevented what happened, which was a good old-fashioned bank run. And that was the case. You know, Silicon Valley Bank lost $42 billion in deposits in a matter of a few hours. I think it was less than five. And that's, I think, I forgot if uh, percentage-wise, but it was such a high percentage of their deposits that almost no bank in the United States on a percentage basis could withstand that kind of a run on the bank. So think about that. And no matter what provisions, you know, you can – basically what we did post Dodd-Frank, we built a space shuttle, uh, you know, to to basically do – Look at derivatives and syndicated loans and everything else. Uh, this was people just being losing confidence and literally same thing that happened in the 30s lining up this time electronically to get their money out. Why because they didn 't trust that the money would be available at the bank and so when you think about that, I think the you know there is going to be a lot of post-mortem studies, I'm sure, on, you know, what the banks did wrong, how they should have diversified, looked at interest rate risks. Uh, there should be some examination of the Federal Reserve, frankly. Um, you know, they have the dual mandate about the monetary policy and the maximum employment. Part of their monetary policy and financial stability is making sure that the banks, that's, that's where their bank supervision comes. And when you really think about it, they had 13 consecutive interest rate raises. Um, and, uh, you know, these banks have long-term assets, and those assets don't adjust overnight. So, you know, managing that becomes, frankly, not easy. Um, so a lot, I think studies will be done to, to look at all of that. But I do think we need to take a look at the regulatory response as well. Um, I was shocked, frankly, when I, when I heard um, testimonies, the, the first testimony on Silicon Valley bank failure. And the um, vice chairman for supervision of the Federal Reserve basically said, Answered the question, when did you first hear about the volatility at Silicon Valley Bank? And he said Thursday morning. And they asked the FDIC chairman, when did you hear about it? He's like Thursday night. I mean, we're talking less than 24 hours than when this bank was taking into receivership. So there is something to be said about the, the, uh, the regulatory response in those 24 hours and what could have been, should have been, and wasn't done.
2: Norbert, if I could, just real quickly to hit a point that Yellen says that hits close to home. So I work for a global bank today, at least for another 10 days, and I can assure you they have deferred We're
1: Going compens- to claw back your compensation.
2: <laughs> for the next five years, there are so many different ways they can claw back my compensation, but it's imposed by the board of directors of the bank. And so this is where, again, if we would allow there to be greater market discipline, you would see some of these outcomes without them having to be imposed um, by the regulators or by Congress.
0: And, and that's, this is a good point though. I think this is, they already have a lot of the discretion to do this. Some of the bills even use the board of directors uh, in the bill, so that's, this, is, this isn't an entirely new thing. The regulators already had the discretion to do that. And the thing that I wanna point out really quick is that in 1991, the, the prompt corrective action piece of the FDIA Act, um, that is what gave us, the, or gave the FDIC the authority and the requirement to do a lease cost resolution to, the, um, to, the bank, to a failed bank, lease cost to the deposit fund, but at the very same time, that is when the systemic risk exception went in so you, you've, you've had this discretion, uh, and as you read the reports, there, there, there's no mystery. Um, everybody was talking about both the Fed at SVB and FDIC at Signature were talking about this for years, about these so-called lapses, and they just really didn't do anything about it. But it isn't that they didn't have the authority to do anything or the ability to do anything. Uh, for whatever reason, they didn't. So I want to get a little further into the weeds now with this next one. Uh, This is, of of the dozen or so that Rep Waters introduced today, the one that immediately got my sort of, uh, my my red flags up, um, (laughs) is, and I have not read all 12, but I've read the description for most of them. And this one, this is where I stopped, or, well, not where I stopped, but this is a good one, HR 4210 is written, and I'm quoting, to close a loophole that allowed large banks like Signature Bank and First Republic to escape Dodd-Frank's enhanced prudential standards simply because they did not have a bank holding company. Now, a lot of people in this room might be familiar with that holding company distinction, but I suspect most people in the country do not. Can we really call that a loophole? Because I think that really points out a major deficiency in general, with how we regulate banks. And it is directly applicable to what happened at SVB, but not for the reason that Maxine has here.
1: Um, sure, I'll, I'll take this one, because there's nothing like angering your old friends at the, at the Fed. Um, So so I will say this. um, A a number of banks don't have a holding company. Uh, You need to have a holding company if you go above and beyond the plain vanilla banking activities, which are usually done at the insured depository. So for regional banks, the holding company that they have is relevant, but not as much as it is for the very large banks because for the the regional banks, the banks that are, you know, say – $30.50 30, 50 plus billion dollars, up to say 250. The, the most of the activity, 90 plus percent of the activity, is done at the insured depository. So whatever affiliates they have under the umbrella of the holding company, it's almost it's it's not a significant portion of the overall build, business and, and the, the assets under the holdco. co. Uh, for the very large banks, um, the holding company has uh, more affiliates around the insured depository, so the assets are um, and the activities are split differently. I don't, you know, I, I, I tend not to comment on bills, uh, especially as they're pending. I don't think that would have done um, a whole lot or, or much to, to address the, the issue. What happened with Silicon Valley Bank uh, and First Republic? Uh, the holding company would have basically given. So, and, and here's here's where the regulatory tug of war comes. The holding company regulation is at the Federal Reserve level. The Federal Reserve has the Bank Holding Company Act. Authorities, the FDIC and the OCC don't. So if you're a bank... Um, and maybe this is too basic so you can just wave at me and tell me to, to stop talking but uh, we have, the way that the United States banking system is set up uh, it kind of reflects the history of the United States but uh, we only used to have, nat- well we used to have state banks and national banks, this is the whole issue of the separation of powers and, and the state versus federal government um, the federalism and the federal system and it used to be that uh, each, each state, each bank in each state would issue its own currency and uh, you would go, if you're a merchant, if you're you know, producing cotton in Mississippi, and you want to sell your cotton in New York, and the New York banker gives you, or New York merchant gives you, one New York bank dollar. You look at that one New York bank dollar and you say, Well, it's a pretty note, but I'm not sure what it's worth. And so, post uh, Civil War in, 19, uh, in 1864 and 65, you got the, the um, OCC, the Office of the Currency Controller, and they regulate national banks. So, the national bank can function in any state, they don't need Uh, to get license in every state, they get federal jurisdiction. And then you have the Federal Reserve System um, that basically was created in 1913. And the Federal Reserve System includes state bank supervision that buy a dividend to be members of the Federal Reserve Bank system And then you have the FDIC created in 1933, and it supervises the other state banks, state chartered banks, banks that don't have, uh, they didn't pay to be the members of the Federal Reserve System. They didn't buy the dividend. Um, And so when you look at our regulatory framework, you have three agencies constantly hovering, similar jurisdictions, but not exactly. They look at different entities. So this bill that you're talking about would basically give the Fed the jurisdiction to regulate Um, entities like uh, First Republic which didn't have a holding company and again if you're a plain vanilla bank you really don't need a holding company Uh, if you want to expand your activities outside of the banking space and have affiliates that say do insurance or something similar you need a holding company but I don't think that would have done other than have another regulator looking at them the same regulator by the way that was looking at uh, you know some of the state-chartered banks. It would have been the San Francisco Fed. Um, So I'm not sure that it would have addressed any of the issues that emerged. But but good for the Fed. They would get more power.
2: Well, in this particular case, I'm going to have to take back something I said. When I said I read legislation, I must admit, when I was chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, I really didn't devote any time to reading the bills written by Maxine Waters, so I just want to clarify that (laughs) for the record. You know, you started out, Norbert, mentioning the word contagion. And so we're spending a lot of time musing about kind of some of the underlying regulatory responses to a possible contagion or bank failure. I I don't know the answer to the contagion question. I have my doubts. I haven't looked at all the data. But... You know, to think in a nation of 300 million plus people that three people can essentially decide that there is contagion and then we're going to employ this systemic risk provision that essentially allows the government to backstop every single deposit of every single person. Again, just that allocation of power is somewhat frightening. And also simply the proposition that no bank can be allowed to fail in the U.S. Wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit more caveat emptor among depositors and among shareholders and among creditors? And so what is it we can do to, again, we want to achieve perfection. It's not like flipping a light switch. But how do we start getting into a regulatory framework that has more market discipline and less regulatory discretion? But if we are defending the proposition, again, as we've already discussed, under, I guess it was, Fedisha back in 91 maybe allowed the FDIC to use all of their prompt and corrective uh, actions. So again, it wasn't lack of regulatory authority. And then on the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief Consumer Protection Act, actually, we had a much pithier title in the House, but they took it to the Senate. They gave it a very boring name. But even in that particular piece of legislation, it simply allowed it, something that. Was mandated in the bill between 100 billion 250 billion assets, was made permissive, so the Fed still have those powers. And then we didn't. And Yellen has already discussed the whole bank holding company issue. So again, it's uh, it's a false argument, possibly for a false goal.
0: No, I no, I agree. This is if you look, anybody can go look at section 165 of Dodd Frank. It deals with the holding company. Uh, the Fed still had the same regulatory discretion without that, without that bill, without Dodd Frank. Uh, FDIC still had the same regulatory discretion without Dodd Frank. Uh, there's, there's really a, a bigger question there, I think, for me anyway, of why are we, why do we care so much about the holding company? That really goes into the weeds, um, but, but the fact of the matter is, S twenty one fifty five didn't affect signature at all, and it wasn't a loophole. It just didn't affect it. Uh, FDIC was still the secondary regulator for SVB. So <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. Um, and and then something you brought up, Jeb, I want to touch on. I'll just jump a, l- a little bit ahead, this this stability question. Uh, this this Is this the flawed concept here? Like, if we want to talk about getting more competition and more market discipline, more skin in the game... Is not is it not the case that financial stability, as a regulatory concept, where we say you know we we can't let banks fail, we can't uh, we can't let contagion go, we have to do this federal backing, and we have all these prescriptive regulations, is the stability concept itself flawed? Is that the wrong way to look at it? I'm the only one who wants to answer that question. <laughs>
2: Well, one, you have to define your terms. What do we mean by stability? And then at what cost stability? I think I could create a really stable banking system by requiring every bank to reserve uh, 100% capital. (laughs) At that point, you have a very stable bank system that doesn't loan out any money. So, again, the question is, what is stability at what cost stability? And I would also say there may be kind of short-term and in, in, in long-term. Number one, I'm not sure that as we go through this cycle of financial event crisis, then we increase regulation by increasing regulation. We increase bailouts by increasing bailouts. We have less market discipline. Then we have more boom-bust cycles, which takes us back to create even more regulatory authority, more bailout authority. Less. It's, it's just lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat and at least my reading of economic history is, is that I haven't necessarily seen in the U.S. where we have greater financial stability, um, you know, post Fidisha, Fyria, Dodd-Frank, and in fact, if anything, we've had some of our more serious economic shocks. So number one... Do we define stability on a short term basis on a long term basis, and then what is what is the remedy to something being unstable and I strongly sense to have you know son or grandson of Dodd Frank is not going to be the answer to this, and again, back to stability, and we may or may not get into it but Now I guess the Fed Vice Chairman Barr is proposing 20% capital for kind of the large money center banks. I don't know what that number is uh, and I know there's a lot of smart people at the Fed, a lot of smart people at the FDIC but I'm not sure they're smart enough to know exactly what that level is, and and there is this sweet spot, and the question is, again, is it gonna be decided by regulatory fiat on a knee-jerk reaction, or is it gonna be decided more um, within the marketplace, whereas, again, depositors and creditors uh, and shareholders are trying to find that sweet spot, because it will have cost. The cost of 20% capital, will it lead to greater stability? I don't know, but it very well could lead to less economic growth at a time where I personally think the odds still favor we could be headed into a recession because of monetary policy among other factors, and if so, all of a sudden, this becomes pro-cyclical instead of counter-cyclical when it comes to the question of stability.
1: And I'll say that financial stability doesn't mean that, you know, no bank fails. Um, in the United States of America, we still have a market economy. And in that market economy, some participants will be successful, um, some won't. And the ones that uh, will not, I don't think the government has a duty to to bail them out or to substitute for their failures. So what I, what I found particularly puzzling um, You know, and I already mentioned uh, the surprise about the the lack of information um, at the Fed and the FDIC about the 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 state of Silicon Valley Bank. But what else I found particularly, um, um, frankly, uh, discouraging was the fact that that bank should have been sold Thursday night. That bank should have been sold Thursday night had Silicon Valley Bank been sold Thursday night, you would not have had, there would have been a message coming out of the FDAC there need to be more communication uh, by you know by six eight a m they should have had an MOU um, on Friday morning with an entity and then you can work out the details later, but you needed to send the assurance to the markets a market participant has failed there will be no repercussions for the banking system, your deposits are safe, and we will maintain confidence in the banking system. And that's what we are created to do, both the Fed, you know, and partly the, the I'm sorry, both the FDIC and partly the Fed. And so to to me, um, you know, as, as a former chairman, it, it kind of pains me that Um, That bank was not sold Thursday night. It needed to be sold Thursday night. So whatever buyers you have at the door knocking Thursday night, you basically say, welcome. Let's talk. We'll be here all night. Um, And that's really how it's supposed to happen. Instead, the bank was, you know, allowed to close. I think it was 11 a.m. East Coast time, um, 11 something. And uh, you know what happens when you close a bank midday? Two things happen. The other banks get a run. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the stock value of those bank banks. And so when we talk about the cost of what, um, the, the, you know, not selling Silicon Valley Bank ASAP Thursday night, the cost of that on the economy is not just the, you know, $20 billion that now the banks are going to have to pay into the special assessment that the FDIC is going to impose. The cost is the fact that we lost two other banks as a result of that, because of the of the loss in confidence in the banking system and the stability, the bank va- the stocks dropped. Um, the uh, this will inevitably lead to a credit crunch, to consumers. So when you when you, you have to look at the trickle down effect of these decisions. And the decision isn't just like okay, so we'll impose you know the bank failed, we invoked you know systemic risk exception, we ended up selling this bank. Um, And, you know, the cost is $20 billion. The cost is a lot more than $20 billion. And not to even speak of the moral hazard of invoking the systemic risk exception. And just so that the audience knows, and you're probably familiar with this, but the systemic risk exception is a big deal. It's not... uh, it's not like, you know, press button one if you like it, press button two if you don't. You need to have two-thirds vote of the FDIC board. You need to have two-thirds vote of the Fed board, the consent of the President of the United States and the consent of the Treasury Secretary for this systemic risk um, exception to, to be invoked. I mean, People, that's a big deal. We can't get, like when I was at the, I worked at the Fed on rulemakings. so I worked at the FDIC on rulemakings. It takes months to agree on like two paragraphs in a rulemaking as you propose a rule or finalize a rule. So to have the, the boards of these agencies do this, it's a, it's a tremendously big burden, and to invoke it, um, frankly, and, and by the way, if it was going to be invoked, if you're going to take that moral hazard, that should have been done, you know, Friday morning. You don't have a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank, or you turn down buyers. Now you have to do this so that you send the signal to the markets on Friday while the banks are still open that, that that's the case, and so, so I, I look at the timing of these events. I look at the decisions behind these events. You know, I, I don't know how much of of what went behind the closed doors will come, become public, but it would be good for public to have that level of transparency, because in the end, we will all pay for some portion of, of you know what happened. Sure,
0: sure. I, it, there's a lot of uh, still sort of confusion around exactly why they did it, and I know Jonathan McKernan's statements have, have, have said some things. There have been other reports about buyers or not having buyers, and uh, there's an accountability that needs to be there for sure. Do you think that the systemic risk exception itself is counterproductive? Do you think that it magnifies all of these problems to the extent that we shouldn't have it?
1: If you look at the statements issued by the agencies, by the Fed and the FDIC, uh, and by the way, it's not just the systemic risk exception that they did. On Sunday, the two agencies in conjunction with Treasury and the White House uh, invoked the systemic risk exception. Uh, But really, what mattered... Quite a bit was what the Federal Reserve did in addition to the systemic risk exception, and what the Fed did is um, um, change the terms for the discount window, where they would take the assets. The banks can pledge assets to the discount window and get col- and so they would pledge collateral and they would get money for X duration. Um, and, it, uh, you know, the Fed before that Sunday wouldn't take the, some of the assets at par value. So the Treasury bonds and, and, and they looked at mortgage-backed securities and stuff. So they said we will take more collateral, different kinds of collateral, at par value. So that sent the signal to other banks. You can come to the discount window. You can get liquidity um, the second thing that the Fed did in conjunction with Treasury was create a—I forgot the, the exact name—but it was like basically a temporary guarantee facility. Uh, I think it's about $25 billion that would be backed by uh, by Treasury if needed. And if you know, if uh, as, as, as they say uh, in the old country, you know, you know what hit the fan? Like this is where we go to get the money to, to beef up the system as, as we need it. So it was in conjunction with the systemic risk exception that the Fed's discount window was changed and this temporary guarantee facility was created to basically send reassurance to the depositors and the banks, you're going to be okay. So what happened on, I think it was Monday the 13th, if I recall the dates, it was the 13th Monday, you had more run on the banks, you had more bank stocks drop uh and uh you basically that volatility in the system really continued and if you go look at the stock you you won't know a lot of the confidential supervisory information at individual banks because it's supposed to be confidential supervisory uh information but you can follow the stock prices and you can see how the market's responded and it was a roller coaster ride never high always low and lower for the next 5 or 6 weeks until you had silicon i mean um, first republic uh taken into receivership and and everybody was waiting for that last shoe to drop and what would happen so i do think it's it's a people need to recognize what a big deal it is what happened and 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 again that it didn't necessarily produce the results that you would have hoped because if it worked to provide confidence back into the system that didn't happen that monday
0: it did produce it the results Tuesday. that i feared but i'll just i'm just that's my vote
2: Norbert, if I could, I know one thing I'm confident of, none of this would have happened on Yelena's watch. That's one thing I'm confident of. I would also say, listen, I I came to Washington in 03. I left in 19. When I came to this city, I was not a cynic, and I was not a conspiratorialist. I left as one. (laughs) And I also know that on a good day, public policy can look out over a two-year election cycle. And so I'm sitting here looking, knowing that we have a presidential race that's coming up with an incumbent whose numbers are challenged, to put it politely, and knowing that any kind of bank uh, incident, crisis, contagion, you fill in the blank, would make his numbers go down even more. And not just the upcoming election, but knowing that regulators don't want this on their watch. But what they do is they tamp down the small fire only to create the underlying public policy tender, if you will, for a much larger fire. I didn't know I was gonna go with that metaphor, but I think it works. And again, you're just creating more moral hazard. So as I said earlier, were we facing contagion? I don't know, but it frightens me that so few people can make this decision. And as Yelena pointed out, there hasn't been the type of disclosure and clarity we need as the American people that would confirm that decision after the fact. And I would finally just say that once you allow kind of precedent genies out of the bottle, it's really hard to put them back in. And during the financial crisis, and then to the COVID crisis, where the Fed has pretty well backstopped every financial market in the universe, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm not surprised that they would once again open up this credit facility. They would take in assets uh, at book value and not at market value, that this systemic risk exception was imposed. Uh, again, I would say so much was changed and altered in the regulatory sphere um, during the financial crisis, after the financial crisis, and it's, it's just gonna be challenging to take us forward to a place again where there's less moral hazard and more market discipline.
0: So reforming it is probably gonna be difficult. Uh, obviously getting rid of it would be more difficult. Um, but to, to push back just a little bit here, um, or to play devil's advocate I guess. So we have FDIC coverage of more than 99% of the deposit accounts. Uh, we have Federal Home Loan Bank advances to all commercial banks. We have the Fed's discount window. We have the Fed's lending facilities, which we know can pop up on a moment's notice. Um, and the Fed's broad goal is to maintain liquidity for the whole system. So why do we need a systemic risk exception?
1: Did you ask the FDAC? Yes. What did they say?
0: Um, because without the systemic risk exception, they would not be able to cover the uninsured deposits at SVB, and then they would have not preserved the franchise value to be able to sell the bank.
1: So you know what's interesting about that? The lawyer in me perks up. And what the, what the FDIC was, did was something very unusual that uh, Friday morning. Um, they, they didn't create a bridge bank Friday. A lot of people, you know, it was reported in the press. A lot of uh, media called it the bridge bank. It wasn't the bridge bank. So what happened is that on Friday morning when Silicon Valley Bank was taking into receivership, the FDIC did a, some, a very unusual structure. It hasn't been used in a long, long time. I don't really recall exactly when, but I called one old-timer from the FDIC, and I said what in the world is this Deposit Insurance National Bank? You know, the acronym is DIMBY. It was called, uh, not to be confused, with NIMBY. It's DIMBY, I've learned, because, you know, I I misspoke. But um, the the, the Deposit Insurance National Bank was created. It was called the the DIMBY of Santa Clara. Uh, It was created in Santa Clara, where the county where uh, Silicon Valley Bank is located. And um, all of the insured deposits were moved into this DIMBY. And so what was left in Silicon Valley Bank was uninsured. So when we talk about the systemic risk exception that was invoked, it wasn't uh, – the insured deposits were set aside. And really, the bridge bank was not created until after the systemic exception was invoked. Uh, to put together the DIMBY, uh, the, you know, you can call it Humpty Dumpty, put together the DIMBY and this insured, uh, uninsured portion which was left in Silicon Valley Bank. And so when you talk about losing franchise value, the second that DIMBY was created and the insured deposits were taken away, you lost franchise value. So you know, 36 hours later, you invoke the systemic risk, or 48 hours later, you, you invoke the systemic risk exception. It can be because you're trying to preserve... The, the franchise value. It can be because you broke up that franchise value into pieces. That uh, that uh, Friday when you when you created the Dimby uh, structure. So what I think is is really fascinating is you know, and I think you know some scholars should should examine kind of exactly how this took place. And also the other uh, angle that people have not explored enough is um, it's been lo- a long-standing since I think late 80s, early 90s. Um, doctrine at the Fed um, about the source of strength which means that a holding company is supposed to be the source of strength for the insured depository in the time of distress and in Dodd-Frank that was codified there was a provision that says the holding company is supposed to be the source of strength for the insured depository. So think about it when you break up the structure, when you break up Silicon Valley Bank that has a holding company and there is some cash in the holding company, I think it was about two billion Um, dollars what happens is that that duty from the holding company, the source of strength, goes to the insured depository institution. When you take the Humpty Dumpty apart, that holding company no longer has – the question is, does it have any obligation to the, you know, to the actual uninsured bank, which was Silicon Valley Bank Friday night, because the DIMBY was insured, Silicon Valley Bank was not. So in reality, you have undermined the ability of, of the FDIC, frankly, to go after the assets of the holding company. By, by creating this structure, so this is a lot more complicated than, than really what you know has been um, how it has been analyzed in the press, and, and I think that the regulators kind of a shortchange themselves. You know, it's questionable if they'll be able to claim much on this source of strength. To, if you're if you're an FDIC um, chairman, you want to protect the insured depositor, you want to get all of that money from the holding company, and you want to put it into the deposit insurance fund to minimize the losses. Uh, but if you lose the ability to go after this this vertical to the holdco. This, this, you know, this, this hand that can go and get the cash out of the whole call, then you really have created more damage. And so I, I do think that you know, all of this should be analyzed more thoroughly. Um, and in reality, really, if that bank had been sold Thursday night, and, and, and even at, you figure out what structure, what cost, what this, what that, you really wouldn't have to think about um, you know, There would have been some loss to the bank. The bondholders, the stockholders bond stock would have been wiped out. Um, the insured deposits and uninsured would have all moved to this new bank. You, and by the way, speaking of preserving franchise value, you know, FDIC lesson 101, you always want to sell the bank on an open bank basis. That's when the franchise value is the strongest. That's why before it was taken in receivership, every effort should have been made. The FDIC chairman should have been making calls left and right. People, come, come over, come over. Let's talk. This bank needs to be sold tonight. Come, come, come. And if that wasn't done, then I, I, I do find that that's problematic.
2: Well, Norbert, also, as you know, it's a very, very small, minuscule market, but there is a private deposit insurance that is available today for deposits over $250,000. Uh, but for whatever reason, so many of the depositors of Silicon Valley Bank didn't take advantage of it, and they were, have probably, as many others, have been lulled into security due to the history of backstopping these banks and other financial institutions. So when I was in Congress, I went to made a few trips to Silicon Valley. It was there that I met my first 26-year-old billionaire. Um, I showed up in the meeting in a suit. He showed up in a green T-shirt. Be that as it may, there's a reason they called Silicon Valley Bank Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know for a fact, I seriously doubt there were many Walmart greeters who had deposits at that bank. But as a symbol, the gentleman who I mentioned probably was a depositor. And to think that all of a sudden, the government would come in after the fact and insure all of those deposits if you ever want to start to shift to a paradigm to have this risk priced, assessed, marketed, available through private means, who can compete with a government who can essentially, again, hit the printing press and, 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 and do these backstops for a lot of people um, who again were probably some of the wealthiest, most successful, and I'm very happy they're wealthy, very happy they're successful. But maybe there should have been a message there, and maybe it would have helped to create a market that again would help us on a go forward basis have fewer similar incidents.
0: And with the FDIC system, you're not going to have much of a private market to, to, to exist there so uh, I do want to get to Q&A um, if we can go we have microphones uh, coming around and I would just ask um, if, if you would please state your question in the form of a question uh, have somebody right back here and then somebody up here hi thanks Paul Kubiak
3: AEI a former FDIC official way back when So the systemic risk exception in Title II of Dodd-Frank was meant to be, you were meant to use orderly liquidation authority. That was was what orderly liquidation authority was all about. SVB Financial owned SVB Bank. They didn't take over the holding company when they could have, which means that there were plenty of the people that uh, Jeb met out there who didn't lose a lot of money that could have lost more money. Uh, In fact, the the whole process went from from a resolution that would have cost the FDIC actually zero since SVB Bank had 95% of its deposits uninsured to the most expensive bank failure in FDIC history so can you square all those facts why what why not orderly liquidation authority where did this decision come from how come the banks and we have to pay for it when it was a regulatory failure maybe that's a big question <laughs> Sounds
2: like a yell in a question.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one um, and then get security for me as I leave the building. Um, the, 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 I will say that, um, um, how do I say this politely? I think the problem has been um, that you know we thought that in Dodd Frank, in Title One, Section 165D talks about the living wills, and then Title Two of Dodd Frank basically talks about this orderly liquidation authority. And, and for those in the audience who are not too familiar with this, the OLA, the orderly liquidation authority, was provided in Dodd Frank. It was highly controversial. Republicans in the in, in the Congress hated it because they basically called it the the, the kind of a, the, the government bailout of these institutions. What happens under this orderly liquidation authority for a Systemically important bank that fails, you're supposed, you, the FDIC chairman, are supposed to call the Treasury Secretary and to basically say, We're going to guarantee all of the deposits, uh, insured and uninsured, but I will need a line of credit from Treasury. And uh, it was one of those calls that I told the FDIC staff, guys, if we ever have to make this call, Like, I may as well just walk out. It's like the failure of the institution if we come to that point. This is – talk about the last resort. That's literally supposed to be the last resort. What I am more comfortable with uh, in in a way that I'm upset about is that, uh, frankly, Silicon Valley Bank had been sold in whatever form, shape, however – Thursday night, they would have not had to do any any of the systemic risk exception. You could have had the Fed come out the next day and do the, if, if there were concerns about market confidence, they could have done the temporary guarantee facility, they could have done the discount window opening to others just to make sure the market stabilizes. That, those would be normal, relatively normal actions of the Federal Reserve, because now the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System has done that several times. I do find it problematic that... Um, I'm actually glad they didn't invoke Title II uh, because Silicon Valley Bank was a $209 billion bank and whether some people consider that systemically important or not, whether that designation is slapped on it, going back to my premise, some banks should be allowed to fail and again, it shouldn't be at the taxpayer's loss, it shouldn't be at at a loss to other banks. I am not comfortable with the fact that now the expense of that will be borne by the banking industry and by virtue of that by the consumers. So
3: told Thursday morning that a bank is failing and they sold it Thursday night. They have to market the bank. That that's an impossibility. It was rated a camel stew at the time of at, at the time of
1: fail. But did you ask them if they had buyers Thursday night? I doubt that. How would they, they couldn't even market it. Who would rule would buy something that they don't even know it's in the bank Thursday night? They had interested parties Thursday night. I, I can't
0: believe that. Oh oh. Oh. Sorry, uh, Bert. And then we have one up front. After that, Bert. Uh, thank you very much. What's a your very question, interesting,
2: Bert? Uh, discussion.
0: Um, Prelude to my question. I've done a deep dive on SVB's numbers. FB, SBB had a business model a, a parallel with the business model of the hundreds of SNLs that failed in the 1980s. It was borrowing short overnight money in, in money market deposit accounts that it was investing uh, long term. SVB was a, a state member bank, so the Fed was the regulator of both the holding company as well as the bank itself. My question for you is this. Is the Fed being held to sufficient account as the primary supervisor of both the bank and the holding company for this incredibly
2: risky uh, maturity mismatch structure that had developed over a period of time? Well, I think the short answer to your question is no. No. I mean, it's almost like one wing of the Eccles building didn't know what the other wing of the Eccles building was was up to. And so, as you know, they put practically a zero risk weighting uh, on these treasuries and when it comes to credit risk. You know, pretty close to being accurate. But how they managed to completely miss the interest rate risk, and again, to some extent, are they... Have they been unable to look themselves in the mirror and understand what the implications are of this totally unprecedented experiment? You know, a very radical departure in in monetary policy to keep, you know, essentially a a a zero interest rate policy for an extended period of of time. So when you say, are they being held accountable? Again, the short answer is going to be no. And as you know, they have their own funding source. They have to show up before Congress twice a year for Humphrey Hawkins. I, I I think Chairman Powell is on the Hill now. I don't quite know if it's a Humphrey Hawkins hearing or not. i lose track of these things. It is. My former staff is telling me that. <laughs> Once a staffer, always a staffer. Uh, but no, they're not being held... Uh, Accountable? Absolutely not. And so we haven't even gotten into really kind of a historic perspective of how many of our f- financial panics and crises and events probably have arisen from monetary policy mistakes. And so again, since one side is monetary policy, the other side is prudential regulation. Why can't one take into account the other? Uh, I do not know. What Burt, also tells me, personally, I think there's going to be other shoes to drop uh, in banking. Again, does it rise to the level of contagion? I have my, my doubts. But they were a particularly egregious example in their business model. But you've got a whole lot of assets that have dropped tremendously in value. And you're gonna have a number of depositors increasingly wake up and saying, why am I getting 40 basis points on my account here and I can get whatever money market funds are handing out. So there's still gonna be some challenges and some stresses here. And I can tell you just about, Proposing and managing to pass any legislation impacting the Federal Reserve—I can assure you—is very heavy legislative lifting. Very heavy. Thank you. I'll
4: be quick. My name is Ann Vroom. I wanted to focus in on the issue you raised early, which was how was there a run of forty-three billion dollars extracted. Withdrawn from the bank in a several hour period. Um, my understanding is that most bank practices that if you, asked, you want to make a withdrawal beyond certain limits, which are usually in the neighborhood of $70,000, it's going to occur over a couple of days. It's not instantaneous. Um, so I'm wondering how did that happen? How did 43 Billion dollars get taken out by depositors with no guardrails whatsoever, no closing down of the system at some early earlier point. Um, and to the extent there's an answer to that, does it have to do with the advent, uh, you know, of new digital banking models? Because if there are no guardrails in those digital processes, like there used to be, if you went into a bank to a bank teller. Um, then it seems to me there is a systemic risk because you can start a run on a bank with a tweet nowadays. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts about that aspect of the SVB crisis.
1: Thank you. Thank you, and I'm I'm happy to take that one. Um, There are guardrails in how uh, you release depositors' money. In fact, um, most of the deposits that were um, the request was initiated for the wire transfer that were initiated up until the cutoff was 11 o'clock Thursday night were made it through by Friday mornings. And I forgot, I think the cutoff was 11 o'clock. So it's not, um, sometimes these, these deposits get initiated, they're not instantaneous, to your point. Um, if you have, depends what kind of account you have at the bank, it can be more quickly than, than not. But there there is, you know, the, the deposits that were made after whatever this cutoff date on Thursday night was, they didn't make it. But the, the $42 billion did flee the bank in a matter of hours. Um, and, uh, you know, you can pull up your phone right now and probably transfer a lot of money. If you have a lot of money, you can transfer a lot of money from one account to another from one bank to another. Uh, there are also kind of a, not really real-time real time uh, transfers, but, you know, if you're part of the network among the banks, uh, there's a way. I don't want to name the products, but, you know, there's a way to transfer funds very quickly. Um, so there are definitely ways with the current technology for you to transfer money Incredibly quickly. I'm kind of always surprised when I I move a little bit of money to pay the bills. I'm like, huh, that already hit my account. And I used to remember having to actually wait hours for that to be able uh there there is a holding period um i think it's reg e um um i think it's reggae don't hold me to this that says basically if you deposit the check for 100 bucks 20 bucks is you know 10 bucks is going to be available now the the 80 90 bucks will be available but that's for checks so this is just if you already have the cash sitting in the bank it can go pretty quickly um
0: and a precedent to stop this sort of thing is actually very easy. Uh, it's in non-financial bankruptcy. Uh, you can take out all the money you want. It doesn't matter. It's coming back. Um, there's there's no reason not to do that in the bank. So uh, we, that, that's a hell of a lot easier to fix than all these other things that we've been doing. So,
2: Well, to follow up on one of your comments, the current chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry, very clever, cleverly labeled SVB as the first Twitter fueled bank run in US history. And Yellen has had to deal with this, not so much me from my perch. But clearly, there's a huge psychological element to a bank run. And I think our bank regulators have not necessarily awakened to the new reality of how social media and in a digital world, the whole psychology and the pace of a bank run can can unfold i mean if you were a depositor at silicon valley bank you're skiing in aspen and you're you know you hop on the chairlift the phone goes off you look at it you know you press a few buttons here to one of your assistants you know you get to the top of the mountain boom you've already pulled out 40 million bucks
1: And if I can add, just uh, speaking of regular suggesting, you know, um, I was running the FDIC during the pandemic, and so we have heard of depositors in the early days of the pandemic after the national emergency was announced, uh, declared, um, we heard that banks, the depositors, for large deposits were wiping out their entire accounts. So I called over to the Fed and I said, did you hear that the accounts are being you know, cleaned out at these banks? They said, yes, we're dispatching more cash to the branches. They did. They dispatched more cash to the branches. Um, and then we were thinking, well, what should the FDIC do? And we said, okay, let's create a, like, a public service announcement to tell people your money is safe in the banks. And uh, and so, you know, I kind of impromptu go on the camera. We record a little public service announcement. I didn't even have a script. I said, "Your money is safe at the banks. You know, the system is stable. Don't pull your money out of the banks. You don't need to hoard cash. You don't need to hoard toilet paper, but certainly not cash." Uh, and we post it. We post it pretty quickly. And then for the FDIC, we go viral, which is not a you know difficult for the FDIC. The standard is not that high, which means it gets like a thousand plus comments. And they're like, "We're viral." And I was like, "Well, I'm just curious. What are those comments?" And about 60% of them said um, uh, if the FDIC chairman tells you you your money is safe, you should buy gold. Uh, Another (laughs) 30% said if the FDIC chairman tells you your money is safe in a bank, you should buy Bitcoin. And then uh, the 10% was mixed between... She's doing exactly what she's supposed to do. FDIC was created to protect your deposits, blah, blah, blah. And there was a very small percentage who basically said, oh, I didn't know that the FDIC is run by a Russian. Uh, So I think think for the regulators to adjust, and I was born in Serbia, not Russia, but for the regulators to adjust to the current information sharing on on Twitter and other media, it's it's a learning curve. I can tell you that for, for a fact.
0: Helena, Jeb, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you all for attending.